0: Please sit comfortably. So good morning everyone. Our first day of session. And for those of you who may be listening to this as a as a podcast later on, um, we had very hot weather yesterday and this morning. And now we have this lovely rain cooling things down. And um, and I enjoyed walking up through the rain to here to give the talk to the meditation hall um, very slowly and without an umbrella. (laughs) It's really good just to feel the the rain on the skin and and absorb it. Another natural event that happened um, this morning, which I presume all of you saw, was the extraordinary dawn. You see the the red dawn, the blazing red dawn in in the east there over the horizon? I didn't see it until I came up to the veranda to take my shoes off and then turned around. And um, my first thought was, it's a bushfire coming through the, through the eucalyptus forest. It was so ablaze with red, and then of course I realised it was just the, um, the red of the, the dawn. But it, it's one of those vivid moments um, where there is just this moment with that red dawn you know and yet at the same time there's something timeless about it and you reflect on how many times the sun has arisen over that same landscape there do you know for millions of years you know? and, um, and who's witnessed it mm-hmm. and our culture has only been on this land for 200 years which is minuscule, really. And if you think of the the traditional people of this land, who were the Warramai people, who lived in the Port Stephen, Stroud, Gloucester, Barrington-Tops area, uh, that my great-great-grandfather had the pleasure of living alongside with um, many years ago, Um, they've arguably been here for at least 10,000 years. and maybe 40, 50,000 years. How many people have seen that same sun arising, you know, and that beautiful glow of a new day? And it just brings us back to the ordinary wonder of existence, which is always here, and it's always surrounding us, and which is us. And yet, often we, we're simply out of touch with it and we simply don't recognise it for what it is. We get caught up in pettiness and the mundaneness of our, our lives and don't witness it for what it is. And again, if you reflect, if you go out you know, even more broadly and you consider that we're on planet Earth, which is revolving around the Sun, a little solar system in a little corner of the universe, and we're lucky enough to have water and all the other um, aspects that involved, you know, the cultivation of life. And here we are. Mm-hmm. It's like we're, we're in an oasis in a desert. You know, and here we all are. And uh, we have this wondrous ability to, um, to live our lives and appreciate our existence. Um, But unfortunately something happens and um, something clouds our mind through thoughts, abstractions, constructions in the mind. And then instead of seeing the sort of the universal wonder of everything, we just get caught up in often petty little details of our daily lives. gossiping about our neighbours, you know, and their sense of dress or whatever, you know, or getting caught up in petty legalistic issues, you know, in life, rather than just using common sense. And these become our preoccupations that we get narrowed down into, and, and we forget about the red dawn, you know. We forget about the splashing of rain on our face We're just walking down the street and that lack of appreciation gets clouded over. And our Zen practice, particularly an intensive retreat like this, is a way of dropping out of that abstraction, that intellectualising process and conceptual world, and dropping into this. It's simply what it is. In Buddhism, there's a teaching called The Three Marks of Existence, and the three marks of existence are no self, emptiness, that everything is empty of anything substantial, and that everything is impermanent, and that there's suffering in the world, or dissatisfaction. And these three marks of existence always used to confuse me as a, Uh, a Buddhist teaching until eventually I came across a book by um, Thich Nhat Hanh, which clarified it and then it all made sense to me. But Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a very experienced Buddhist scholar, was, um, said actually in in the Buddhist scriptures there were two marks of existence and the third one got added on later. So the two marks of existence is everything is empty of self and separation and everything is impermanent and then he said probably you know the buddhist teachers and monks added the third one as a mark of existence like a fundamental aspect of existence because they wanted people to recognize you are suffering you are in a state of dissatisfaction and we want to get that across really clearly right from the very start right but what didn't make sense to me was that one of the other Buddhist teachings is the Four Noble Truths, and it says that there is, a, there is suffering, and there's a cause of suffering, and there's an end of suffering. Right? So if there's an end of suffering, how come suffering is one of the marks of existence? Couldn't, couldn't work it out. But when you put it together, and it's clarified by um, Thich Nhat Hanh's wonderful teachings and scholarship as well, is that if you are not aligned, if you're not in touch with the emptiness of self, and if you're out of touch with the impermanence of life, well, as a consequence, you will suffer. Because you're trying to hold on to a separate identity and, and hold it up, and you're resisting the coming and going of life as it happens. So if you align yourself with those two marks of existence, or those two aspects of reality, that everything is empty of self and everything is impermanent, then you don't suffer. At least not in the psychological sense of the word. Now, we're all human beings, we all experience pain and pleasure, and we all experience not just physical pain, we also experience emotional pain, you know, like grief and loss and things like that. But the suffering, is is what we add on to it. It shouldn't happen to me. Why why me? All of that. But it's human to experience pain, even emotional pain. Um, But it's this added on, egocentric kind of identification with it is what we would call suffering. So that's the nature of existence. It's hard to argue with, really. Everything is empty of a separate self. Everything is connected. Everything is interconnected. Nothing exists permanently alone and everything is coming and going in the passing of time and space. Very hard to argue against. Uh It's just what we experience. Um, And all human beings experience this in some way and they experience the disconcerting kind of insubstantiality and impermanence of everything. Everyone's experiencing that to some degree or other. Most people ignore it and try to just get on with their lives, making money or getting caught up in this and that and dramas and entertaining themselves. A few people notice it and really notice it and then look into it, which is what brings people to practice. And it's looking into the the causes of it. You know? And the causes of it are grasping an aversion and grasping, having grasping an aversion in a very um, abstract, constructed kind of way, um, which clouds the mind. You know? And as we all know, at an individual level, level it creates division, um, disconnectedness, and multiply that by millions and millions of people. We have war, famine, poverty, and the rest. So, when we do a session here, and we're, you know, uh, so so, uh, grateful to be in such a beautiful nature reserve like this. The rain and the, all the elements and the birds and the animals. Um, it's a way of us and doing zazen, mm. just sitting there still, quiet, focused in the flow of the present moment. Now if we bring all that together, it gives us an opportunity to drop out of this of the mind, we're all caught up in this abstraction and to drop into the organic nature of what life really is. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tended over the years to use the word organic intelligence as a synonym for Buddha nature because there is an intelligence that runs through all, all things. Human beings have the arrogance to think that we're the most intelligent creatures around, or the only ones. When it's obvious there's an intelligence that runs through seeds growing into eucalyptus trees, and frogs, and earthworms. Mm -hmm. DNA. How extraordinary is that? Um, As the theme of this is about returning to nature, I wanted to read to you one of my favourite poems, um, which is by William Wordsworth, and it's called The Tables Turned. And it has such a such a, um, uh, a resonating Zen theme to it, even though he was an Englishman who knew nothing about Zen in the 19th century in England. And it's called The Tables Turned, And it's written for his sister, who he used to go on long walks with in the countryside almost every day, like really long walks. And it's written in, it's not preachy, it's written in a very playful manner. Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double. Up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil and trouble? The sun above the mountain's head, a freshening luster mellow, through all the long green fields has spread her first sweet evening yellow. Books, tis but a dull and endless strife. Come, hear the woodland linnet, how sweet is music, on my life there's more of wisdom (coughs) in it. And harp, how blithe the throstle sings, he too is no mean preacher. Come forth into the life of things, let nature be your teacher. She has a world of ready wealth, our minds and hearts to bless. Spontaneous wisdom breathed by health, truth breathed by cheerfulness. One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good than all the sages can. Sweet is the love which nature brings. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things we murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art. Close up those barren leaves. Come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. And ending on the note of receives, it's, it's the wisdom that receives, not the wisdom that takes. And one of the misunderstandings that I think people often have about meditation, what we're doing, and, and say, particularly Shikantaza, which is a very um, pure form of meditation practice with no technique, is that you're, you're not doing something. You're not doing something to get a result. That involves kind of going to a goal and projecting something onto yourself and onto life of where you've got to get to, you know, from stupid me to intelligent me or something like that, you know. Um, unenlightened me to enlightened me. And really the whole, point of Shikantaza practice, or meditation really, is to just be receptive. So you know, when we're trying too hard, we're looking for a result, you know, or if we're trying too hard to see the beauty in nature or the rain um, and project romantic ideas onto it, it's kind of like we're not actually listening to it. And so really the, the key to meditation is just be like a sponge. Just, you're just a sponge, and you're absorbing what's coming in. But to be a sponge to absorb what's coming in, you've got to open your pores, you know, so it's open to receiving it. But it's not going out there to get something. It's it's much, it's so much more simple than that, and it's so much more playful than that, and it's so much more easier than that. Have to sit there let the rain come to you that's all in the poem too William Wordsworth makes reference to English birds our bird friends the linnet and the throstle right? um, they come from England we have different birds out here so we have we have magpies do you know who are considered to be the the virtuoso of the bird world, with their the beautiful lilting rhythms and sounds, and so on. Um, but we also have cockatoos and kookaburras, and people might, you know, rejoice in, you know, in hearing the sound of the magpie, which is fine. But equally, we should rejoice in the sound of the kookaburras and the cockatoos. You know, with their raucous, rah, 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 you know, that's very different to a magpie. But um, cockatoos are kind of almost like, and this is me projecting onto them, but they're almost like comical creatures. I think one one poet called them the um, something like the larrikins of the bush, um, and um, they're kind of these big beefy guys with a lot of swagger. You know, and and they got this raucous kind of laugh and they're kind of like, they're kind of like very Aussie, you know, kind of, guys like, sit down mate and have a a drink with a beer, right? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But there's no high and low in the the way. We have magpies who can sing beautifully and we have cockatoos, you know, and, and both have their own wisdom. So just as William Wordsworth wanted to listen to the wisdom of the linnets and the throstles, we can listen to the wisdom of the magpies and the kookaburras and the cockatoos, right? We've all got their wisdom. Other wisdom too, um, to make a link back to Aboriginal culture, I don't know whether they have any here, but there's a type of frog which is called the corroboree frog, which is very apt when you think it isn't. They just sit around these tools, and they make these sort of repetitious you know, croaking sound all night, like, like the sound of the sticks, you know, the didgeridoo and the sticks. So we have, in the evening, we have the corroboree of frogs as well. James Austin, who was the author of Zen and the Brain, a neurologist who was also um, a lifelong Zen student, we shared the same teacher of Kabori Roshi in Japan, although we never met. Um, In one of his books, he talks about avian Zen and how in the the history and the folklore of Zen, that that so many people had their awakening moments by hearing birdsong. Because you know, they're so vivid and they're so random. And that's one of the aspects of being in nature like we are here today, is this randomness. And it's so different from the, the clock world that we live in and the machine world that we live in. It's so If we try to make so predictable, you know, so that we can control our futures, mm-hmm. but we let go of that, and we just embrace the, the random spontaneity of whatever occurs here. This bird song that happens, that blowfly, mm-hmm. that drop of rain mm-hmm. is all that's happening. So this session is about dropping into that organic intelligence. You are the organic intelligence. You have a body, a heart, lungs. Liver, kidney, skin, blood, DNA, brain—that is all organic. In many ways, our bodies are more intelligent than our logical minds, but we don't credit it for what it is. You know, they run—you know, they, our bodies keep us alive, but we're not consciously doing it. Something extraordinary is happening there, and that's all part of the organic interconnectedness of everything. We're part of it. It's just that we've lost touch with it. So a session like this is about putting aside all those constructions in the mind and the thinking and the the, the minutiae and the pettiness of our little worlds and just opening into this organic life. We're as transient as these raindrops, we're as vast as the sky, we fill the whole universe.